I invite you to turn with me in your Bible or a Bible underneath the pew in front of you or to just listen carefully to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. You remember from last week that this writer in verses 4 to 8 has delivered a very hard word of warning to the effect that some of his listeners might be in danger of making shipwreck of faith and being lost. But now here he gives an encouraging word and expresses his confidence in them like this, starting in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. In other words, he doesn't believe that it's as bleak as it might have sounded when he gave that warning. Better things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, this this warning way. Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. So in spite of what anybody might have thought last week, the goal of that warning was assurance. Strong, full, not half full, but full assurance of hope And not just partway to the end, but all the way to the end. Verse 12. That you may not be sluggish. That's been his concern all the way through this book. He sees in this people a tendency towards lackadaisicalness, sluggishness, kind of coasting in the Christian life. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I ask with all my heart now that this word would not be preached in vain. That hearts would be opened, that assurance would be granted to all the saints, that unbelievers would be awakened to the truth and the beauty of Christ and of your own holy self and that people would be saved by faith in Christ, and that we would all be united in one great, full assurance of hope that preserves us patiently to the end, where we will inherit eternal life. And Lord, I pray that the confidence born this morning through this great word would make us a bold and courageous people who can live lives of risk-taking love rather than retreat and withdraw. So, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would come and do that work and more. In Jesus' great name, amen. I've been really keenly aware in recent days and weeks that in America and in little circles where I function, love and how it gets expressed is in great measure controlled 
by how we think people are going to feel about what we say and what we do. America these days, it seems to me, and I see book titles bearing witness to it, are a people, not entirely, but in large measure with very thin skins. Very given to feeling like victims, feeling like they're offended and they're wounded and they're easily hurt and therefore it's always somebody else's problem we can put our bad feelings on. Which means that the way we express love to one another and to people we might think need a tough word gets restricted because we feel ourselves held hostage by their bad feelings. In other words, if they can convince us by body language or by words or by lifestyle that if we say this, they're going to feel bad, then we say, that's probably not the loving thing to say. And so instead of the bottom line of love being a principle or biblical rule or really what's best for people, it's just feelings. How they're going to feel if we do this or say this. I'm concerned about this because of, I, I got started thinking about it because this word in verse 9, do you see the word beloved? When you put the word, uh, the little prefix be on the front of loved in English, it makes it a kind of religious sounding word, beloved. You don't ever use it. When do you use that word, beloved? That's a, hardly anybody says beloved unless they're in a religious context. Well, just scrap it. It's not in the Greek. Beloved is not in the Greek. It's just loved. Loved people. Loved ones. Although that too has a connotation in English of family. Loved ones. It's just loved people. I love you. He, he gets to verse 9 and he's just spoken about the hardest words he's going to speak. And he says, I love you. And when I read that yesterday, I thought, yeah. And why don't we do that? Why can't we handle that? Why does love get so restricted into a kind of touchy feeling? You're okay. It's all right. I know it's been hard. And only that. Sure it's that. But it's not only that. It's, it's also verses 4 to 8. Watch out. If you go on in this direction, be fruitless. You're going to be like a field that gets burned up. Its end is destruction. Now, so you say that to somebody, and they might say, whoa, back off. That's not loving. But it is loving. He says, I love you here in verse 9. Verses 4 to 8 is love. Verses 9 to 12 is love. They're two different forms of love. We need to be this way. Now, what I'm saying is Christians ought to be different from our culture. We ought to be different. We ought not to have thin skin. The church ought to be a place with thick skin. Why? Because we don't get our significance and our stability and our security and our meaning and our worth from what people say about us. Do we? Do you? I fear many of us do. 
It's a constant temptation to want to be liked, to want to have people say nice things about us, to want to be approved, and to get all of our joy and strength from day to day by the echo of what's coming back to us in what we say. Bad news. That is bad, bad, bad. That's the way human beings without Christ are. But we are different. Why? We are loved by God. We are chosen by God. We are forgiven by God. We are accepted by God. We are indwelt by God. We are strengthened by God. We are guided by God. We are secured by God. We're surrounded by God. He's underneath. He's on top. He's everywhere. What do we care? Or do we? Do we believe it? That's the issue. Do we believe that who we are, where we're going, how we get there is God's thing, not the world or even other Christians? And so I I just plead with you not to be a part of the cultural thin-skinnedness so that when some hard word lands on you, true or false, some ugly criticism, some slander, or some legitimate rebuke. You don't do like the world. The world does generally one of two things. It shrinks into a little corner of self-pity and woundedness and, oh, poor me, how could you ever do that to me? And as oh, Or it sues you for harassment. And they're both flowing from the same issue of thin skin. People who don't have their bearings. They don't have roots. Everything is being governed by how you come in on to them. Don't be like that. Grow up. Be an oak tree. Not a cattail with thin skin. All of that, I believe, is implied right there in this precious word, beloved. Beloved. When I was thinking about this, I I went over and found in... In Paul's word, a testimony that I want so much for myself all my life. He said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Now that's thick. (laughs) That is thick. Because it could so easily read, When we are reviled, we revile back or we feel self-pity and retreat into our bedroom and won't come out. Especially if the wife said it. Or it could say, when we are persecuted, we get the upper hand and make sure they get persecuted back. Or we don't have anything to do with them. Or when we are slandered, well, if that's the way they're going to treat us, then so much for them. That's thin. That's thin. And that's not Christian. We are to be thick people. Thick skin. But, don't miss this. Since our significance, our bearings, our meaning, our security, our stability, our future is in the hands of a loving, strong, mighty God. So much more important than anybody else. Since that's true... We're also people who are humble. And like James 1.19, I think, says, be slow to speak, quick 
to hear. No, get it backwards. Be be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's kind of a somebody starts coming on you strong with some rebuke or some admonition or some criticism. Some of it warranted, some of it unwarranted. You don't need to immediately throw up words of defense. Well, if if you knew what, well, if you only, you don't need to do that. You can be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. Why? Because God says, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. You're mine. Listen, you might learn something. You can grow. So my first point is let's not be part of the victim, wounded mentality of America today. Let's be humble, thick-skinned, which enables us to do two things. Be loved or be hurt toughly. And do what I've done maybe three or four times in the last recent months. I take a a person I care about out to lunch, a son or one of you, for the explicit purpose of inquiring about a problem I see in your life. That is going to be bad news if you don't get it fixed, leading you away. And I know that when I do this, I'm running a huge risk. I, they might say, why don't you just butt out of my life? It's none of your business. You're so nosy. They might say that, and I don't want to be told that. That hurts. And they might feel justified in saying that. And then we end the conversation all awkward, and how do you talk to them again? So you don't do it. Or they might say, um, who do you think you are? You're not perfect. You're pointing out my flaws. Just get off it. They might say that. No, shoot. So we, we think of all kinds of reasons why tough relationships, where you get in somebody's face and you say, you know, I've just seen some attitudes that I just can't see that they're being motivated by God and I'm concerned for you. I mean, that's a risky thing to do. Especially with somebody you care a lot about. But I'm pleading with you. Do it. Get into each other's lives. You got small groups? Be thick small groups, not thin small groups. Grow up together as small groups. In a family, dads, get on the kids. Take them out to lunch. Ask them about some stuff they're listening to on the radio. Put your hand on their shoulder and say, I love you. I'm concerned where you're headed. Do that. People in your Sunday school class, somebody at work. Big risks. But the only reason you're not going to take it is if you're thin. That is, you really are getting your life from them and not from God. So get a life from God. That's point number one. Point number two, and there are only two, is how in the world 
Here's the question I'm trying to answer in point two. How in the world does this writer in verse nine have such a confidence that uh, his readers are not going to fall away, which he said they might in verses four to eight? How does he get that? Let's read verse nine. Beloved, we are convinced. You see, that's the word that caught me. I like that word. I'd like to feel that about myself. I'd like to feel it about most of you. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. In other words, not destruction, but salvation. Even though we are speaking in this way, this warning way that I've been speaking in verses 4 to 8. So evidently, as he writes this verse, he's expressing the confidence that when they heard last week's sermon, or that text, verses 4 to 8, They wouldn't say, who do you think you are talking to us? We're born again. You don't talk to us about the possibility of becoming like a field that might bear no fruit and be burned up. We're born again. Don't write that way to us. Don't preach that sermon to us. We're a church. We are saints. We are children of the living God. Don't read verses 4 to 8 to us as though somebody in this room might be lost even professing Christ. He evidently thought that's not what they were going to do. They weren't going to respond like that. How were they going to respond? Evidently, he thought they would listen to the warning and they would say, wow, this is the man who speaks for God and his warning must mean that we are a fragile people. Let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall Therefore, let us join him in being diligent to maintain the full assurance of hope to the end, lest there be in us an evil heart of unbelief leading us away from the living God. I think that's the way he expected them to respond, and that's why he felt so encouraged about them. People that hear warnings and say, I don't need that, are in grave danger. People that hear warnings and say, I hear you and I'm with you and I'm fighting. I fight the fight of faith every day and I fight it with a great sense of security that I have been bought by God. So he's encouraged. But why is he encouraged? What what is it about them that has caused him to be encouraged and confident? Let's read the answer in verse 10. You see, verse 10 begins with because or for. So he's giving a reason for his confidence in verse 9. So he says, I'm confident that you're going to make it because God is not unjust. That's the essential argument. You're going to make it because God is not unjust so as to forget your work And the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now, what's amazing about this verse and what's kept me busy for hours on this sermon was that this is a verse about justice, not mercy. It just stuns me. He is saying We are convinced of better things concerning you, 
because God is not unjust. And I, I say, wow. So I've got to figure out now how the justice of God increases the assurance that I have for others and for myself. Because that's what's happening here for this writer. The justice of God is somehow grounding and upholding his confidence that they are going to experience things that belong to salvation. And I would have thought it was the mercy of God. So that's what we have to figure out. And here's the problem, if you're like me anyway. Into my head, when I say justice of God comes, God's disposition to give a person their just desserts. So if you do this, then you get what that deserves. That's justice, which is bad news for me. I didn't deserve to get saved in the first place, and I don't deserve to stay saved because I'm no perfect person. So how can justice be of any use to me? Whereas mercy we think of as coming to the undeserving, giving them faith, giving them forgiveness, embracing them, justifying them, taking them into God's fellowship, and promising them everlasting life. So give me mercy. Oh, yes. I'll take mercy. But it's all about justice in verse 10. So you can see what we've got to wrestle with here. The question we must answer is, how does God's being just help this writer be confident about these less than perfect people? He He's just called them dull and sluggish and by this time you ought to be teachers and I mean he just laid into them and from 512 on and now he's saying because of your work and because of your love for the name of God the justice of God will see you through I say oh man I've got work to do here so that's that's the point we're working on here notice the justice of God seems To undergird his not forgetting something. See that in verse 10? God is not so unjust as to forget. And and then he mentions two things. Your work, which he defines as ministering to the saints. And their love for the name of God. I'm, I'm sorry if some of your versions don't have that phrase. Love toward the name of God. That's a good literal translation. And when when the justice of God sees that, he's, he remembers it, and somehow that prompts him, it seems, to see to it that these people experience salvation forever. So the justice of God is an absolutely key part of their getting from here to there safely. Oh, man, this is amazing. Let me put it in five steps for you, just to sum up what we've seen so far. Number one, they have ministered to the saints. You see that? Verse 10. Number two, they love the name of God. Number three, God's justice sees this 
takes it into account and will not forget it. Number four, this not forgetting what they have done and loved prompts God to secure them, to keep them. That's how this writer gets his confidence that they're going to make it. And fifth, the writer then feels confidence because of God's justice. It's an amazing sequence of thought. How many of you would have thought this way? Is this part of your thinking about how your assurance is grounded and supported? Is this one of the, the boulders on which you stand in your life of assurance? The justice of God. Or are you like me? And when you hear the word justice, you say, you keep that. I'll take mercy. We gotta, we've got to figure out this so that we can have two boulders under our feet. Not just one. The boulder of justice and the boulder of mercy. The problem is that I don't merit my salvation. Justice seems to respond to merit. It says, okay, you merit this, I'll give you this. And oh, how easily some have taken these verses, this verse 10 right here, and said, aha, see, you must merit your salvation. It's as though... Now, this is a wrong interpretation. I'm going to articulate a wrong interpretation here. Justice looks at these people's works and he says, oh, they don't need mercy. Look, they're ministering. Look, they love God. They don't need mercy. I see, rather, I, the justice of God, see them performing and meriting. And what they need now is justice. Sure, mercy got them started. Mercy is like the jump start in the winter of sin. And now they got to keep their battery charged. And look, they're doing it. They're doing it. And so we got to pay up. I'm God. They've earned salvation, so I'm going to pay up. Very easy way to take this text. That justice responds to merit here. I'll give them their due. Their due. Namely salvation. That's a wrong Interpretation, I think, because it would be massive contradiction to almost everything else this writer says, as well as the rest of the New Testament, namely what salvation by grace through faith is all about and what living by faith in future grace is all about, which I learned mainly from the book of Hebrews. Um, look at verses 11 and 12 to see what the living of the life of faith really looks like. We desire that each one of you would show the same diligence or the same earnestness so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. He wants them to have full assurance of hope to the end that you may not be sluggish, careless, cavalier about your faith, but imitators of a certain kind of people. Now, what kind? People who, not through meritorious performances, but who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what's unmistakable here is that the battle, the great battle of the Christian life is not the battle to produce merit so that the justice of God will repay with salvation. The great battle of the Christian life is to keep on trusting God, to keep on being satisfied with God, to keep on resting in God so that patiently salvation 
comes into your life. So we left with this question then. How does the justice of God undergird our assurance or the confidence of this writer that his readers are going to make? Now, here's my answer. It starts with a a broadened definition of justice. One definition of justice, and it's not altogether wrong, is that uh, God gives people what they deserve. When he does that, he is just. That's true. That's true. However, justice is a bigger biblical idea than that and includes other kinds of desert, namely God's desert. Meaning, if you ask, what's the biggest, best value in the universe? What's the most important, most precious value in the universe? What's the highest worth? The answer would be God. The glory of God. Not any material value, building, paid off or not paid off, and not any human value. The biggest value in the universe is God. He is the most valuable treasure in the universe. Now, if that's true, then the question becomes, what would be the just response of God to that value? And the answer is, he must uphold that value. He must vindicate that value. He must honor that value. He must so work and speak and live so that the most important value remains the most important value in the universe. Else, he would be unjust. For God to act or to think or to speak in a way so as to belittle or to minimize the infinite value of the glory of God would be unrighteous and unjust of God to do. So now if you broaden out the definition of justice so as to include God's merits and God's deserts, something new happens in this text. Verse 10 says, God is not unjust so as to forget your ministry to the saints, your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name. And you see what's at stake here. These people love the name of God. Now, the name of God is not G-O-D. Somebody came up and asked me, Afterwards, does this mean you always have to correct people when they say, my God, or Jesus Christ, or, you know, when they swear using the name of God? I said, no, no, sometimes you might, sometimes you might not. G-O-D-C-H-R-I-S-T, J-E-S-U-S is not the main issue here. We're talking reality, a person. To love the name of God is to love God. God! Who he is and his character and his personality. These people loved the honor and the glory and the majesty and the personality of God. When the justice of God looked on that, 
What was at stake was God. So this justice says, I'm going to put words now in the mouth of justice, God's justice. As it looks there and it sees, here they are. Now let me tell you what their ministry looked like. I'm not making this up. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 34 describes what he's talking about here. And what it says is that they endured a hardship. Some of them went to jail. Some of them didn't. Those who didn't ministered to those who did. And it cost them their property. And they were so in love with God's all-satisfying treasure and reward that it says in verse 34 of chapter 10, they rejoiced at the plundering of their property as they visited their friends in prison. Now that's a mega love for God. That's a mega delight in and resting upon and cherishing of the superior value of God. Now that's what this justice of God, looking back, sees. I see ministry to saints and I see it flowing from a tremendous love for the glory of God. And what it says, therefore, is not, well, they don't need uh, mercy. They need just somebody to pay back their performance, which is calling attention to its value. Rather, what it says is, what I see is a heart so full of God that all attention is being directed away from its heart, away from their value, away from their merit, which is non-existent, up to God who is satisfying their heart. And when justice sees that, it says, that I will sustain. That I will uphold because the glory of my name is at stake. I think that's what's going on here. Justice doesn't look back and say, ah, they're calling a lot of attention to themselves so that I can see the intrinsic worth of their performances and I see, oh, so much merit there that they are creating and I must now in justice repay. It's not what's at stake. That's not what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Rather, you have... People who are needy, they are broken, they are imperfect. He's just told them how imperfect they are in chapter 5 and 6. And they are looking away from themselves up to God. And they are finding satisfaction both in the mercy and the just character of God. And they are saying, if God will not save me by his sheer mercy, then I have no claim on God whatsoever. And they are being satisfied with that and they are laying down their lives in ministry to other people. And the justice of God sees that and says, I will hold that up. And the writer to the Hebrews looks at the justice of God and says, if you will hold that up, they will make it. And I am confident. Now you add to this, Chapter 13, verse 21, which says that ministry that they are performing and that love toward God, which they are exercising, is not their work. It's God's work in them. Because in Hebrews 13, 21, it says he works in us what is pleasing in his sight. 
Now put yourself in the place of the justice of God. Here I am, the justice of God, looking on the lives of these poor, imperfect people. And what I behold is not only hearts that are looking away from themselves to the glory of God, drawing satisfaction, which frees them to lay down their lives for others. I see that behind that is the grace of God working it in them. And so the justice of God says, that's not you, that's me. That's God. And I will honor God. I will honor the work of God. So here's the final bottom line conclusion. The reason the justice of God provides assurance of salvation is that the justice of God always honors and upholds those who cherish the mercy of God. That make sense? I'll say it again. Now, the reason for that, before I say it again, the reason for that is when you cherish the mercy of God, when you cast yourself helpless on the cross of Christ where the mercy becomes most visible, when you say, that's my only hope, that's my only portion, what you are doing is directing all attention away from yourself and your helplessness and your sin and saying, Christ is sufficient, Christ is all, Christ is trustworthy, and God in Him is gloriously trustworthy. And when the justice of God hears that kind of talk, it says, I'm there supporting that because I'm always on God's side. I always do what upholds the worth of God. So now let me say the key sentence again. The reason that the justice of God is like a support underneath my assurance of salvation is that the justice of God always works for, upholds, honors, and sustains those who cast themselves lovingly, cherishingly, helplessly upon the mercy of God. The justice of God supports those who lean on the mercy of God. And if you know that, you can also lean on the justice of God, which is what verse 10 calls you to do. So my goal this morning is not anything other than to encourage assurance. Let's go back where we started. I said Americans are thin-skinned people that are ready to sue and they're ready to fight and they're ready to say, oh, poor me, because they're so insecure. And now I have laid before you two great boulders on which you need never again be insecure, but mightily secure and assured. And one is the mercy of God Revealed to you in Christ that comes sovereignly to you by the Holy Spirit, drawing you to faith and putting the love of God in your heart and forgiving your sins. And the other is the justice of God, which does not respond to you by saying, you got a merit in order to get to heaven, you got to produce merit. It doesn't say that. It says, If you are casting yourself wholly on the mercy of God, then you are calling all attention to the trustworthiness and the glory of God. And in justice, I cannot belittle that, abandon that, or do anything other than sustain that. And therefore, you can plant your foot solely on the mercy of God 
and solely on the justice of God. And you can lay down your life. You're thick now and humble and peaceful and ready to do anything God calls you to do. Let's pray together. As I was contemplating the fact that this sermon ends chapter 6 and next week is missions week and a guest speaker will speak and we will glorify the God of the nations. And then the week after that, I'm going to speak on missions. So we're taking a two-week break from Hebrews. I just felt like maybe the Lord wanted this to be a watershed time for some of you. We take a break here. And a watershed in regard to assurance. This book, Hebrews, is written for the sake of assurance. That is why it's written. And so I want to pray for a group of you. And let me try to describe the group. I'm going to ask you to stand where you are so I can pray for you in a concerted and focused way. And then we'll all stand and we'll be dismissed. But here's who I'd like to stand. If in recent days or weeks or maybe months, this issue of assurance has been a sticking point for you. It's been a troubling thing and you're, you've had an unusual sense of struggle. I don't want everybody to stand up. That's why I'm saying it like this. Because we all go up and down in our level of assurance. I'm, I'm talking about those of you who, who have had this kind of on the front burner of your warfare in recent days, weeks. If that's your case and you just like God to touch you in a fresh, way to witness to you about your own standing. Why don't you stand up where you are and let me pray for you. Okay, there's about a dozen of you. And if you want to go ahead and stand up while I pray, you can do that too. Lord, the standing of these people is an act of humble confession of need. And uh, I join them. And I just want to ask now that the act of standing, which is an act of faith, it's an act of reaching out, it's an act of opening their hearts, that you would now, in your mercy, and for the sake of your just underpinning of that mercy, come upon them. Holy Spirit, would you bless them? Would you pour yourself out in fresh measure into their lives right now? Would you reveal to them the cross? Would you bless them with a sweet, I am your God? Would you cleanse them? Sometimes the battle with assurance is owing to roots in our background. Sometimes it's owing to hidden sin in our life. Sometimes it's owing to satanic attack from outside. Sometimes it's owing to something as simple as sickness and weariness. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray against those obstacles to assurance right now and ask that the Holy Spirit would bear witness with these who are standing and with the Word of God preached 
that they would feel themselves wonderfully embraced by the mercy of God. Indeed, that it would be like forearms around them as the justice of God comes in with his mighty yes to their reliance upon mercy. Now would you all stand, please, as we close. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Don't miss that phrase. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish and with rejoicing before the throne of his glory. To him, to the only wise God, be glory and majesty and authority and might before all time, now, and forevermore. And all the people said,